Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Anoush, and on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, we talk to our executive editor, Tim Ross, about the perfect storm coming over the country just in time for Christmas. Hi, I'm Stephen, and in part two, Anoush and I take your questions about whether or not Keir Starmer's left-wing critics are acting in good or bad faith. So we're delighted to be joined on this episode by our new executive editor, Tim Ross. I think it's your New Statesman podcast debut, isn't it, Tim? It is, very yeah. exciting. Well, welcome. Thank welcome you. to our glamorous studio. It is certainly glamorous and it's <laughs> delightful to be here. Thanks. Well, we've been talking for weeks now about how grim the coming Christmas could be. And now on top of that, there's an added uh, terrifying element to our festivities, which is we could potentially be waiting for another crunch Brexit decision on Christmas Eve because the Northern Ireland Protocol is being negotiated or discussed at least again between the two parties. Um, The European Commission unveiled a package of reforms to the protocol yesterday. We're recording on Thursday and it's up to see whether the two sides entering into talks can decide whether or not the UK can accept those concessions. You've been watching this. What what do you think the UK side is thinking at the moment? Well, we'd all, we've all been watching it for, for years and years, and it's got to the stage where it's sort of not really Christmas unless there's a Brexit crisis um, and, a, and a deal people are trying to do. My sense is that actually both sides are a bit closer together than all the rhetoric would leave you thinking initially, notwithstanding the fact that Dominic Cummings has inevitably lobbed his own grenade into the mix, uh, claiming that Boris Johnson never intended to stick to the deal he signed in 2019. But behind all that heat and light and fury, there are actually, I think, quite a few points in which the two sides are close. And I think you can see that there is willingness on the European Union side to move and be more flexible in allowing the transport of goods, particularly chilled meats, the famous sausage war issue from mainland Britain into Northern Ireland. And that's been a very big issue for unionists and for many conservatives. Um, Similarly, with medicines, I think there's some flexibility there as well. The big issue, I think, is political. Will the Conservative Party still hold the Brexit minister, David Frost, to account for his big point, which is about the European Court of Justice? That's his big demand. Uh, His people say that it's not a new one, that the government has always been clear the European Court of Justice shouldn't have jurisdiction in Northern Ireland because there is no democratic accountability for such an operation. But the European Union clearly say that without that, there is no access to the single market because the single market is regulated by the European Court. 
Yeah. And so what do you think is the likely outcome of these talks then? Because the British government are, are sort of making the argument, or at least um, it feels as if uh, the mood around it is that they, because they've been so confrontational in these talks, they're getting what, what they want. Um, so is it a sort of vindication of their strategy? And will they carry on sort of approaching it in that way? I think they probably will. I mean, it, it's a really interesting point, actually, if you if you compare the two negotiating styles between the prime ministers and their teams over the course of the last five years. You had Theresa May to begin with, who wanted her famously deep and special partnership and wanted to approach the European Union pretty much in a collaborative way to try to work it out together. She sent Ollie Robbins over there, who was in the room the whole time with Sabine Weyand and trying to get a, a deal together. And the reality is actually that didn't work. Not only was she stuck with a hung parliament and couldn't get her deal through there, but the deal itself obviously didn't have have the kind of democratic consent it needed in the UK. And in fact, whatever you say about the Johnson administration, he played a much more hardball strategy and did deliver deals, did deliver both the divorce agreement and then the trade agreement a year later. And I think there is a sense in which actually the European Union has, they won't admit it probably, but has actually shown a bit more willingness to move in the face of the kind of horrible tactics that David Frost deploys. Mm, but of course, some of the mess that we're in now are because of those deals that that, that were created they're by tr- Boris Johnson. They're trying Johnson. to unpick it, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And of course, there's other things catching up with him as well, which you've been writing about in this week's issue. The headline is The Perfect Storm, and it's about this crunch point of the energy crisis, the the rise in prices, the s- supply chain crisis all coming together. And, you know, it's only October. People probably aren't even turning their heating on yet. Um, and the perfect storm comes from a quote from a minister who you heard from saying, you know, this is the perfect storm of all of these issues coming together. Someone else senior in Whitehall told you that there's panic around government because of the impact of what high energy prices could have on society. So all of these things that you've found out from behind the scenes contradict ministers' very sort of relaxed public approach to this, I think. So is there really a sense of panic inside government? I think people are worried. I think you could you could really tell the Conservative conference. It was the issue that sort of underpinned all the debates, but never really bubbled in, in a very meaningful way to the surface. I mean, Sunak didn't tackle it too much in his speech. Johnson skirted over it pretty much in his speech. But around the fringes, it came up a lot. And certainly, if you talk to government advisors and uh, special advisors and ministers but behind the scenes you've got a very clear sense that this was the big worry and they just didn't really know how it was going to go and why could they you know why would they how could they really uh, there are so many issues all coming together at once causing potentially horrific political misery for the government and a, and a very grave situation for the country and for the economy too so I do think there are parts of government that have been panicking particularly when you look at the impact of the gas price on potential shortage industries. I mean, it's one thing if energy bills are being hit for domestic consumers, that's never a good look for a government. It's another thing if the country starts running out of paper and glass and ceramics, because these factories have to shut down. And certainly in case of glass making, for example, if you shut down a glass factory, you can't restart it again. You've got to actually rebuild the equipment, which is hugely expensive. So potentially there are long-term consequences. And if the government can't come up with the sort of solutions to all of these issues, then it could get very serious very fast. Mm. To me, it feels like there's a sort of complacency because with the fuel crisis and the lack of HGV drivers, they sort of made a virtue of it, didn't they? They were saying, well, this is maybe painful for the short term, but it's part of our transition into this 
high-skilled, high-wage new economy post-Brexit and, you know, we're holding businesses accountable for how they treat their staff and how they recruit and what wages they pay. And there was a sense that they'd sort of played a blinder and that Keir Starmer had nowhere to go with that other than to call for sort of cheap labour from abroad. But merging that with these issues, I think, was a little bit complacent and perhaps papers over the bigger problems that are down the line that you've written about in your piece. So do you think there was a sense that they've kind of explained their way out of this issue, but reality is around the corner? I think the reality is around the corner for the UK, but also for a lot of other countries too. It's really worth saying that the gas supply problem, or gas price problem really, is pretty much across the globe. And all sorts of issues have contributed, including a very cold winter in Asia, which sped up demand, the unlocking of economies across the planet after the coronavirus lockdowns, which has also spiked demand as well. America's struggling, lots of countries are struggling, Spain is struggling. But I think, in a way, politically, it's difficult for the UK, especially after Brexit. I think that, in a way, is the issue that really crystallises this as a crisis for Johnson and for his government, because the critics of the Johnson government really will always point to Brexit and say, ah, it would be easier if we were in the EU. It would be easier if we could rely on our friends in Europe. And also, you frankly made it harder, Prime Minister, by uh, sticking to your immigration rules, uh, which mean that a lot of low-skilled labourers who would be here are not. Hmm. And you spoke to an energy boss, didn't you? And he really didn't mince his words. Do you want to tell me a bit about that? He didn't. It was fascinating. And actually, this doesn't have anything to do with Brexit. It was about the energy crunch and the the regulation of the UK market, which is clearly a long-standing thing. But Keith Anderson, the boss of Scottish Power, was speaking at a New Statesman event at, in fact, at the Labour conference. It was a roundtable event. Only a few of us were there. But he, he at one point was so furious with the way that the government had, and the regulator had, had sort of completely failed to regulate the system and allowed in a lot of smaller, really unviable companies, in, in his opinion, into the market that have now collapsed and are letting down hundreds of thousands of customers that the rest of the energy market, the other suppliers, the big six, big providers, are having to pick up. And he says that's incredibly unfair. Yeah, if you pick up the magazine, you'll see some fairly colourful language in it. Yeah, yeah. What is Christmas likely to look like then? And actually, is it is it um, a mistake for the government to be sort of seeing that as its deadline in which it just has to sort of lurch through until next year? Because we know that the visas for the workers who, who have been allowed to come over only expire sort of a few months after December. In a piece that I was reporting on, you know, I found that the, the chemicals that are used to, to clean our water, um, the rules have been relaxed on those, but only in until the 31st of December, which sort of has the impression of saying we'll only have, you know, yeah. <laughs> we'll only be able to clean our water until Who New needs Year's water Eve. in 2022? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, you hear this Christmas deadline quite a lot and uh, you get the impression that they're just trying to sort of lurch on into next year, sort of one last push. Do you have a picture of what, what it might look like? Well, I think, again, probably Boris Johnson's general critics tend to sort of see him as a bit of an essay crisis prime minister who who loves a deadline and enjoys the whooshing sound they make when they fly past sort of thing. <laughs> but it's not the pain. If, if they get through to Christmas, that will be one sort of an achievement without too much disruption. Certainly, I think the talk of power cuts is probably overdone. The question, I think, for the energy market actually is around you know, how viable it is, how quickly to move off fossil fuels. But in terms of the picture for Christmas and the winter, that's not the end of it. I mean, the, the consumer pain, the squeeze on living standards and particularly people's incomes is likely to go on, I think, because inflation is is obviously the big concern that's rising. There are projections that it will hit 4%, may go higher, could last for a long time before it comes down. And that will obviously potentially prompt the Bank of England to raise interest rates too. So their mortgages will go up. And at the same time, in April, we have a new tax. The national insurance will, will increase. 
to pay for health and social care. So Conservatives can certainly see that this is a big problem. Yeah. And actually, before Christmas, we, of course, have the COP summit, which was supposed to be a sort of festival on a par with, with the Olympics 2012. Could it be potentially embarrassing? Because, you know, our energy insecurity is being exposed. I know there are issues across the world with, with the gas prices rising, but uh, it, it could potentially be a painful point during the COP summit. It's not a great look for the host country to have been relying on one 50-year-old power station in Nottinghamshire that's due to be closed down next year to keep the lights on for a few days in September, as was the case in the UK. But Britain's not alone. Again, a lot of countries are still reliant on fossil fuels for their power. And it's a question, I think, not just for the UK. Often it gets put on Johnson's shoulders, but it's the whole world that's got to step up to the plate at COP. And China's got to act, and Australia's got to act, and Saudi Arabia has to bite the bullet in some sense. And these are all very tricky tasks for anyone. And I think, you know, Johnson is famously persuasive. He's a charismatic campaigner who's had a lot of success, but his charm might not quite extend to some of those places. Thanks so much for coming on, Tim. Pleasure. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us. So this is a question from Nathan. He asks, how legitimate are the Corbynite left's grievances with Keir Starmer? So he gives some examples in his question. For example, the perception that Starmer's betrayed the uh, pledge to nationalise energy companies. So Stephen, what do you think? Do you think that these criticisms have a good point or are they made in bad faith because they never wanted Starmer to be Labour leader in the first place? I'm going to do my favourite thing, which is say this is a good question, but then critique the question. Ultimately, in the Labour Party, is this criticism made with bad faith is basically an argument to which the answer is always yes, <laughs> right? With Starmer and, and uh, his his left flank, you can quite literally tell this because you can put the timetable on this, right? Are they now saying they would nationalise the national grid but not the big six like Labour did in 2017? Are they now saying they wouldn't nationalise um, them at all? Are they saying that they would have a kind of um, Robin Hood energy, Hackney Light and Power style, publicly owned new company and they wouldn't really care about this? None of us know. And that speaks to a variety of, of useful criticisms of the Labour leadership. I know every time I say this, like, people get angry, but it is just a matter of fact, right? The point that people started, you know, wandering around like bears with a sore head talking about betrayal narratives was not any of the points of policy divergence. It was the sack of Becky Long-Bailey. And ultimately, there are a group of people who are so invested in the idea that, you know, they did nothing wrong and then, oh, you know, what's a little broken equality law among friends? <laughs> then, um then they have this huge investment in the idea that this is all about, you know, them being purged and whatnot. But one of the reasons why I don't think that's very useful is that one of the reasons why Labour is such a poorly run party is everyone is so obsessed with the idea of whether or not 
uh, complaints are in bad faith, right? We saw this with Labour anti-Semitism, right? You just saw this kind of gradual refining down of like what an acceptable, fit and proper Jewish person to comment on it was. To now it's basically the 6% of British Jews who still voted Labour in 2019, not including the ones like Margaret Hodge and Ruth Smith who very much did so through gridded teeth. So basically at that point we are talking about 4 to 5% of that minority community. But none of that is actually that useful, I think, in the, the litigating of people's motives. The more useful question is always, well, look, is this criticism true? To return to like, the energy example, I mean, we literally don't know what Labour's position on energy is, which I would argue is a problem however you slice it. If it turns out, if it turns out that at the end of it, they want to renationalize the national grid and there's some kind of new Robin Hood energy style. That's so that, that for people who aren't as cool as me, that's the name of the public energy company run by Nottingham City Council. Well, yeah, sure, they've kept the promise. Does it reflect well on the Labour leadership that we're literally sitting here going, what is their energy policy? I, I don't know. Ditto, right? To take, you know, another obviously silly criticism, right? They have no policies when it is a demonstrable fact that they announce them at a, a stunning and counterproductive rate. Or, yeah, to, to cast one's mind back to the previous era, right, when Jeremy Corbyn was criticised for doing the shocking and unprecedented act of briefing favoured commentators ahead <laughs> of time, you know, having media outriders. The th- I think the reason why this matters is one of the things that the Starmer setup has been very bad at is that they don't have outriders, right? You can tell like when they do something like the rule changes last week where yeah, you have a bunch of people who we know without wanting to name names or be indelicate about it, but people who, you know, essentially would criticize literally criticize David Miliband policies when they were announced by Jeremy Corbyn. The kind of people who should be in the tank for a Keir Starmer leadership going, I don't get it, what's going on? Mm-hmm. I think you can draw a direct line between Keir Starmer's inability to cultivate allies in the commentariat with the incredibly silly criticisms of Jeremy Corbyn for doing this thing and every Labour leader has done before. So I think basically the criticisms of Starmer that are, you know, palpably correct are position over spy cops. Now, of course, you could argue in favour of that by saying, well, look, they want to fight the next election on crime and, you know, you just therefore have to just like not allow the Tories any space. So you just, except, of course, the thing you would then immediately say is, well, okay, great, but if you want to fight the election on crime, why have you yet to make an announcement on crime that you don't then immediately, like, choke space from by going, by the way, here's another public policy announcement that could emanate from basically any politician from Jeremy Corbyn to Nick Clegg. Yeah, not, there's, there's nothing wrong with policy announcements that, announce, that unite that sway the public opinion. That's probably the electoral coalition they would need to amass to win a majority. But... It doesn't need to drown out its own its own dividing lines every single day. So I actually think that in some ways the the good faith or otherwise of Starmer's critics is kind of a bit of a dead end. The question always should be, well, look, because I don't know about you, but I feel like whenever you write something about like what a politician's strategy has done wrong, someone goes, but if they'd done the reverse, then people would have criticised them for that too. And it's mm. like, yes, well, that that's true, but it doesn't it doesn't change the fact that whatever you do, you're going to be criticised. However. Are you being criticised by people who have a point, regardless of whether or not they have arrived at that point through a nonsense process? Or are you being criticised by people who have no point? Or are you, in your criticism, again, to go back to a Corbyn-era bad faith criticism of that leadership, and I think it's had serious consequences, not just for Starmer's leadership, but I think the Labour Party will continue to regret 
for some time. This way, then it basically became, you'd see people, you know, like Michael Duggar, for example, right? This is someone who had publicly on Twitter castigated Laura Kay during the um, 2015 Labour leadership election. Then you have people like that going, we would never criticise the BBC, not one. And it's just like, well, okay, that's not true, is it? And there are important reasons why you shouldn't pretend that it's true. And I think it was castigated for, for the Corbyn leadership to operate like any Labour leadership. And now you see a new Labour leadership pulling the exact same levers, in some cases not pulling them at all, and in some cases now having to live with the fact that they have kind of, they have made it taboo to operate as an effective opposition party. So yeah, that was a very long-winded ramble. In my defence, I'm still slightly coldy, but what do you think? No, no. I think in terms of all of these sort of beats that the criticism of the left, and I think Owen Jones has mentioned in Nathan's question, so of that high-profile Corbynite outriders, the beats of their criticism are very similar to the beats of the Labour rights criticism of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. So you're trying to purge us all, you're betraying the party's sort of traditional values, you're turning voters off, you know, you're only talking to yourself, that's another one, you don't have enough policies. I'm not sure if that was so much criticism of, of Corbyn from, from the Labour right, but it's certainly his policies that, like you've said many times before, weren't necessarily that different from previous administrations' policies, definitely sort of caused more anger in bad faith than than they should have done. So, you know, all of those things are the same and you just you just feel as a commentator on this stuff that it's just because the one who they don't want to be in power is in power and so they're using the same arguments that were used against the leader that they supported. That that won't change whoever's in power. There will always be a faction who will level those criticisms. So I don't actually think that that's a particularly interesting part of it. Something that did come up during the pandemic, and <coughs> let's not forget that Kirsten became leader sort of just as the pandemic was hitting, was we need an opposition who needs to oppose. I think that was a distinctive criticism of Keir Starmer from the left that you didn't really hear about Jeremy Corbyn because sort of say what you will about his leadership, but apart from on certain things like the benefits. Because remember, remember though, there was all of that. Why isn't he being more oppositional on Brexit? Yeah, Brexit, that's true, Brexit. And the lack of an actual firm policy on the benefits cap. What are you going to replace universal credit with? Which I suppose is the same criticism now of Starmer. But uh, yeah, no, that's true. That did happen too. So I suppose it's just a function of uh, the people who you don't want to lead the party being in power and picking at the things that you, you think that they're doing wrong. But there are certain criticisms that do unite people who would call themselves sort of loyal or at least supportive of Starmer and the Owen Jones left. And I think some of those are worth focusing on. So the idea, perhaps, that you're not capturing people's imagination. I know blandness or or being seen as a boring lawyer, for example, is, is a bit of a cliche, but it definitely comes up from different voices within the Labour Party. Angela Rayner was not shy about talking about that when she did her Times interview on the eve of Labour conference. And you do hear it from people within the party who supported him as leader, who were a little bit worried watching sort of his style of leadership in contrast with someone like Boris Johnson's style of leadership. And for the Labour left, in contrast with someone like Jeremy Corbyn's style of leadership. So I do think that that's that's one of those criticisms that you hear from different voices, which makes you think there must be something in it. And, you know, it's clear from the the leadership team, you know, the speech that he gave at conference was very much trying to show that he does have an emotional side. He does have a, a backstory that he wants to talk about. And actually, you know, I've spoken before on the podcast about actually being moved to tears by that part of his speech. So you could see that there'd been a great deal of thinking and focus going into that. You can see what they're doing now as well, getting him to 
try and take the HGV driving test and visiting all of these various places and doing the politician in a hard hat pointing at things thing, which we've said before on this podcast, he should be doing more of to try and get those images out there. You know, he should be the type of politician that people don't shrug their shoulders at, but people in the press laugh at because, oh, look, he's doing another photo shoot. And unless we're laughing at the things that they're doing, they're not doing them enough to sort of get through to the public enough and I think that the bland criticism well you know you can argue about how fair that word is and it is a bit of a cliche I do think that there's more to it than bad faith one of the reasons why the Labour Party loses so often is you you are never going to be short of reasons to dismiss a criticism because of the person who's making it and if you if you run out of reasons don't worry you can always invent another one and you will always in a Labour context have someone who is willing to support you with an ultimately doomed strategy. Now, I think the the interesting intra-Labour question is a large chunk, not all of, and, you know, when you'd speak to lots of people in the campaign group who'd go, I'm really worried about our internal strategy here. Uh, and one of them said, the problem we have is that they said Starmer's victory has, has resulted in the elevation of a lot of people who behaved very stupidly on the right of the party. But that only happened because Keir behaved smartly and they said we have this real problem that a large chunk of the campaign group uh, has decided to emulate the Corbyn skeptic strategy without any media support with a weaker institutional position in the Labour Party and they said so how do we think that's going to work out for us which I mean I, I think is is true right but um the bland thing I kind of think actually part of Starmer's problem is is now them kind of, it's just like he is, he is never ever going to be as shiny and interesting as Boris should be. They should essentially go like, our theory of this guy is that at the end of these four years the country will be like we've had quite enough of exciting experiments and here is this guy who has spent the next, the last two years with the three things that people, he says be essentially being crime, have you noticed it's up and it's bad? Climate change, have you noticed that that is bad? Um... <laughs> Me, have you noticed I'm boring and that I will not give you four years of crazy experiments at the end of which we still have a climate crisis and crime is still up? And I think, yeah, you, when you look at a lot of criticisms from his left, from his right, you're like, oh, actually, that is essentially what people are saying. And we can then get into the, oh, are they really saying that because they secretly dream of a world led by Richard Bergen or a world led by West Streeting or a world led by Angela Rayner? Yeah, sure, maybe, but it doesn't, doesn't actually change the fact that the, the criticism uh, is broadly true. I mean, essentially, the problem is, is Labour is a really bad organisation, has a horrendous internal culture, horrendous institutional incentives. Yeah, people are just continually incentivized and encouraged to behave appallingly to one another, about one another. You know, failure is is just rewarded all the time. I mean, it's, you know, it's bad. Um, I mean, like, no wonder they lose so often. But I think one of the, the really interesting bits of amnesia you can see the Labour Party having at the moment is that, you know, the big difference between the 2020s and you know, the late 2010s and the 1980s, right? And I, I'm plagiarizing this opinion from a, a senior figure in the origins of New Labour, who, um, you know, they said to me, oh, well, look, the big difference was is 1983, when you were campaigning in, you know, County Durham, um, you'd be knocking on a bunch of doors and there'd basically be two types of Labour voters, ones who were sticking with you because they'd always voted Labour and ones who were sticking with you because they, they knew who the candidate was and they felt it was OK. They said there was absolutely no one who was enthused by Benism. Whereas if you're knocking on the same doors in County Durham in 2019, 2017, yes, you have some people are only sticking with you because they've always voted Labour. Yes, you have some people are like, I'm voting for you, but, you know, fix yourself. But 
there is a real electoral constituency for Corbynism. Now, demonstrably, it's not large enough to take control of a country or to win a parliamentary majority. And indeed, one of the slight bits of nonsense about the 2017 election everyone kind of forgets is that if they had gained 10 more seats, then that would have still been a House of Commons that would not have been able to deliver uh, a particularly radical agenda and in which probably the only Labour politician who'd have been able to command a majority in the House would have been Yvette Cooper, who, whatever one thinks of her, is not exactly an avatar of radical Corbynite change. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, right, if you want to win yeah, that electoral coalition from Corbyn to Clegg, you do need to give something for that 10 to 13% of the country that is enthused by Corbynism. And I think one of the really interesting things that I really notice whenever I say this is then like a bunch of like Starmerite or Corbyn skeptic or whatever one wants to call them, people go like, oh, but you know, he he did this and like then Momentum did this. And it's just like, well, I'm sorry, if you think that the Labour faction is representative of the voters who are into its policy yeah. agenda, you know, you're a clown. But I think lots of people who are setting strategy or debating strategy in the Labour Party do, I think, sometimes slightly get in this like, mindset of well of course the other side would say that you saw this with brexit of course the other side think we need to have a position it's like yeah of course however they did need to have one Mm. and starmer does need to have something for the people who are inspired by corbynism you've been listening to the new statesman podcast with me anusha kellyan and my colleagues tim ross and stephen bush We're produced by Mae Robson and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.